0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, well, good morning. Let me invite you back to your pews. <clears throat> Good morning, River City Church, and all of the guests who are with us this morning. Whether here in the sanctuary or on the live stream, uh, we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, my name is Jeremy Edelman. I'm the senior pastor here, and I do want to welcome you to our church. As a church, we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. We've gathered this morning to have our lives renewed in Christ. That's what we want to see happen in each of our lives this morning. As God's word is preached, as we sing together, as we pray together, as we greet one another, as you just spent time encouraging one another and greeting, we want to have our lives renewed in relationship with Jesus. The reality is that weariness comes to our lives for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it comes because of busyness. Maybe you've felt busy this week. Sometimes it comes because of brokenness. Maybe you've experienced the brokenness of the world this week or seen it on your feed. I feel like I've seen a lot of that lately on my newsfeed. Or maybe you have experienced the burden of religion, and you're weary from feeling like the rules just keep coming at you. I think that's, why Je- that's what Jesus is addressing most in particular, when he gives the invitation to come to him for rest in Matthew 11, is the burden of religion. We don't want to just be burdened by religion. We want to have the yoke of Jesus. Or maybe for some of you this morning, you feel weary because of your idols and your sin that seemed to continue to plague you. And in response to our weariness, Jesus invites us to come to Him and find rest for our souls. That's what we want for each of you this morning, that you would be renewed in relationship with Jesus, the one who died for us even in our brokenness, and the one who invites us to come and find rest and refreshment in Him. And so, as we begin, let me offer you a welcome in the name of Jesus. To all of you here who are weary and are in need of rest. To all who mourn and need comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and need strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever else will come. This church opens wide her doors and offers welcome. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. And if you would, open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 22 of Acts chapter 22. We'll go through into chapter 23, verse 11. If you're using a pew Bible, that's found on page 932. You can go to grab one of those hardback black Bibles in front of you and use that. Acts 22. It, it's, did we get the ringing? Should I grab the handheld? We're, okay. Okay. We are now fully into the final, really kind of the narrative arc of the book of Acts. Throughout any story, whether you watch a movie, read a book, or as we see in biblical literature, there are a few different climax points in any good story, and we are now entering really kind of the final movement, if you will, in the book of Acts. We just finished one of the major sections in Acts where Paul goes on his missionary journeys, and now we are going to see Paul's journey to Rome. And it's somewhat of a winding journey through different trials and difficulties, but he's on his way to Rome. And and really what we see here is in in Acts, when it starts out, Jesus gives this invitation, actually this kind of command, if you will, to his followers that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In this ever-expanding geographic region, they're going to be his witnesses. And we've seen the way that that has happened. And now Paul, beginning his journey from Jerusalem to Rome really is kind of the last picture of that. In, in so many ways, Rome here, probably more than any other city in the world at this time, represents the ends of the world. It is the epicenter of global activity at this point, and Paul is going there to be a witness to all that God has been doing through Jesus. But it's not an easy journey, and we'll see today, Paul is going to have to live with integrity as he trusts God's providence for what lies ahead. And so we're going to preach through all 20 verses from beginning Acts chapter 22, 22 through 23, 11. But I'm just going to read one verse for you right now as we begin. And we're going to read the last verse in our passage. We're going to begin at the end because I think in this one verse, it really encapsulates the entire message that I want us to hear together this morning. It also serves as an important marker in this larger story of Acts. And so if you have a Bible opened... Turn to Acts 23, verse 11. We'll read that. Again, page 932 in your Pew Bibles. And it says this The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, now as we open our Bibles. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. That in it, you tell us about who you are and what you're doing in the world. That in it it is an invitation to hear from you, your very words inspired by your spirit. And so now we ask for the help of your spirit. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard someone say this phrase, that was the worst day of my life? Maybe you have used that phrase before yourself. And if you do a quick internet search of this phrase, worst day of my life, you'll find songs that are written with that title. You'll find books with that title. I saw a podcast with that title. I even saw an Australian TV show from the 90s that went by that title. It didn't do very well, you can imagine why. Whether you are young or old, to one degree or another, you will have bad days. That is part of the reality of living in this world. Days even that you might call the worst. And and what do you do on those days? How do you respond? Each song, book, or podcast in one way or another is trying to answer that question. Do you, as some try to advocate, do you just insulate yourself from the brokenness of the world and try to ignore it? Do you pick yourself up and swear that you will not lose, or do you just tell yourself that what doesn't kill you will make you stronger? Well, in our passage, Paul, this main character here at the end of Acts, he's having one of those worst days ever sort of experiences. That's why I began in verse 11, because at the end of Paul's really bad day, Jesus comes to him and gives him some courage. And I think for all of us, at the end of our worst days, what we need more than anything is the presence of our Savior to encourage us. Verse 11 gives us a paradigm through which we'll see the rest of our passage. Before we look a little bit closer at verse 11, let me just give you a kind of a brief review of Paul's last couple of days. He had been falsely accused of defiling the temple, uh, which was not true, and it was a place that he deeply respected. And so it would have hurt him to have that accusation. He was nearly beaten to death by an angry mob. He was questioned by the Roman tribune. He was nearly flogged by a Roman soldier. He was hit in the face for speaking truthfully. He felt the guilt of disparaging the high priest, and then he had the fear of being torn into pieces by another different raging mob. All of that to be put back into his cell, and I would say that was a rough couple of days. Maybe we sometimes call it our worst day ever, but I feel like Paul's last couple of days are going to rival probably most of our worst experiences. When Paul's at his lowest, his Lord and Savior makes his presence known to him, and Jesus begins with these words Take courage. I can imagine that must have been strengthening for Paul. Be encouraged, Paul. I'm here with you. I see you. I know the work that you've been doing, I know what you have had to endure. Be encouraged. And then Jesus goes on and he says, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus is saying, you were faithful in your work up to this point. Now take courage and trust that I will be faithful in mine. Take courage, Paul. The one who stood for you at his own trial is now with you in the middle of yours. Paul's job was to testify about Jesus, and now Jesus is telling Paul that he's going to make it possible for him to do the same in Rome. And as we track our way through our passage this morning, we're going to see that Paul has a job to do as a witness, and he took very seriously the manner in which he conducts himself as a witness because it's all part of our witness. It's not just the message. The message is central and important, but it's also the method that bears witness about Jesus. Paul, he had a job to do, be a witness in word and conduct about the resurrected Christ. And Jesus also, he comes to say, he has a job to do. He's already stood for Paul on the cross, and now he stands with Paul, gives him the promise of safe passage to Rome. And this dynamic provides the framework through which we're going to see the rest of our text today. On our worst days, we are responsible for our witness, and God is responsible for His work. You could maybe say it this way, we need to do our job and trust that God will do His. Now, within that framework, I'm going to lead us through the narrative, and then I'll make some application At the end. So let's begin in verse 22 of chapter 22. Hopefully, you still have your Bibles open. Again, page 932 on those Pew Bibles. And it begins in verse 22. It says, Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, so we're picking up here at where we left off last week. So we ended in verse 22 last week. Even just the way it begins, you know there's, we're in the middle of a story. Something's going on here. Paul had been giving a speech on the stairs of the barracks in Jerusalem. The tribune, who we later find out is named Claudius Lysias, he had taken Paul out of a riot in order to bring him into the barracks. But first, Paul asks him if he can address the crowd. While he's in the middle of his speech, he says something that ignites the fury of this crowd again. And as a result, they begin shouting in verse 22, yelling that Paul should not be allowed to live. They are that angry. They want this man removed from the earth. It's pure chaos. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're tearing off their cloaks, they're throwing dirt. And then the tribune orders him, we see in verse 24, to be brought into the barracks. So all this chaos is happening. The tribune says, get him in the barracks. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Lysias, the tribune here, he's watched chaos ensue because of Paul several times now. Up to this point, he could not get a clear answer, though. He's confused about what's going on. He had tried to find out back in chapter 21, verse 33, but the crowd was in such a frenzy he could not get a straight answer. He was confused again on the steps of the barracks when he mistook Paul for an Egyptian who had led a rebellion. Lysias here, he wants some answers. He wants to figure out what's going on, and a common practice in Rome at this time was to flog someone in order to get information from them. It didn't matter if they were guilty or not, and it was brutal, it was barbaric. But the tribune here, he wants some answers, and he's going to use whatever means necessary to figure out what's going on. Paul was the cause of a riot in the temple. Now he caused another riot out in front of the barracks. And a little foreshadowing for you, it won't be the last time that people get so riled up in front of the tribune due to the words of Paul. And so Lysias, he is confounded, and it's about to get worse. In verse 25, it says, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen from birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. As Paul's about to be whipped here, he asks this question if it's illegal for them to whip a Roman citizen. And Paul already knew the answer. He was well acquainted with the law. He knew the answer, and he knew how to use it in his defense. This is similar to what he does in Philippi back in chapter 16, which also caused fear in the leaders in Philippi because it was a significant offense for a Roman official to flog and mistreat a Roman citizen, especially if it had not been proven that they were guilty or had done anything wrong. And so the centurion soldier at first is worried, as he should be, He goes back to the tribune and asks him what what he's thinking, and I would guess the soldier is maybe even a little bit angry with Lysias after all of this, because he doesn't want to get wrapped up into all of this and get himself punished. The tribune now is once again perplexed. He wants to know if Paul is actually a Roman citizen. He doesn't believe that he is at first. Lysias had paid a lot of money to become a citizen is Paul wealthy? The tribune wants to know. Did he pay for it? And Paul tells him, no, I've been a citizen since birth. The tribune, as I said, is already confused, but now it says in verse 29 that he's also afraid. He almost flogged a Roman citizen. He almost had to bear the consequence of his own mistakes and folly. And if we take a moment to consider the humanity Of Lysias here. I am sure that this whole thing was really difficult for him. Who is this Paul guy, and why did he cause such an uproar? He just could not, he had no, like, category in his mind for what was happening. I can imagine Lysias going home and sitting down to dinner with his wife, and she says, hey, how are things going with that Paul guy? And he just replies in exasperation, like, I don't know. I cannot figure this out. He does not have a category for Paul, so he tries a new strategy, In verse 30, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Lysias' new strategy, because he can't figure it out, is to bring in the leading Jews and have them question Paul. Lysias is going to sit in on the questioning to see if he can get some more clear answers. And now there were some likely some proceedings as this began, but we don't get a record of all of those here, but we do get the beginning of Paul's defense, right there at the beginning of chapter 23, verse 1. And it says, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul begins again, we see this over and over in a respectful manner. He addresses them as brothers. He goes on to say that he's lived his life in good conscience. Now, this does not mean that Paul thinks he's perfect, that he's lived a perfect life. It's very clear from the rest of Acts and Paul's letters. He believed himself, like all of humanity, to be sinners and in need of a Savior. However, when it comes to the law and his conduct, his conscience was clear. He had lived above reproach. When he had sinned, he had confessed. He had repented. He had trusted in Christ. But the high, priest, the high priest here does not like the answer, and so in verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? The high priest is not happy with Paul's initial defense, his opening statement This high priest didn't like that because he thought that Paul had done something wrong and Paul is claiming to have a clear conscience. And can you imagine, in Paul's situation, needing to give a defense of yourself and within the first sentence someone hits you in the face? Paul's frustration isn't just that it was probably painful, probably annoying, but also the fact that having struck Paul on the mouth that this itself was against the very law by which this man was supposed to be judging Paul. In response, in response, Paul points out the hypocrisy of it all. He's saying, "You're going to judge me according to the law, and then contrary to that law, you've struck me on the mouth," which, according to Leviticus 1915, would have been unlawful for him to do. Paul calls him a whitewashed wall." And if you can imagine a crumbling, moldy and rotten wall getting painted over so that it would look fresh. The inside is no less rotten, no less ready to crumble even if it looks fresh for a moment. This is Paul's estimation of this man. He may look good in his regal dress as he sits to judge, but his actions show that he is rotten inside. He lacks the integrity to follow the very law that he now wants to hold Paul accountable to. And what we know from historical records is that Paul's estimation of him is accurate. It's right. Ananias was a particularly bad high priest. Records show that he was horribly greedy and selfish. And we, we can assume, though, that Ananias was not wearing anything that made it clear that he was the high priest. We'll see why in a moment. Or that Paul's eyesight, which we know he didn't have the best eyesight, or the vantage point from which he was sitting, made it impossible to see whatever markings would have indicated he was the high priest. Because others now point out to Paul that the man to which he just insulted is the high priest. In verse 4, it says, Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak ill of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized what he had done, whom he had just insulted, he was apologetic. He acknowledges his own error. He even quotes from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight 28, that he should not speak ill of a ruler of God's people. Paul respects the office of the high priest even if he does not respect the man who currently occupies the office. And in this interchange, Paul lives in the tension of confronting injustice while honoring the authorities that God has placed over him. Some commentators accuse Paul of being too weak here that he should not have apologized, that he actually should have gone further, he should have continued to point out how terrible Ananias was as a high priest. Others accuse Paul of being unnecessarily disrespectful and sarcastic in his response. However, what I I think we see in Paul is a very human experience as a follower of Jesus. Paul sees the inconsistency in the high priest's actions. Ananias lacked the integrity of the law by which he is now uh, judging Paul, He commanded him to be struck on the face, which was in opposition to that law. With courage and conviction, Paul points out this error. When Paul realizes that Ananias is the high priest, he regrets the manner in which he confronted him. Pointing out his inconsistency is one thing. Reviling him and calling him names like whitewashed wall is another. Paul recognized the role that rulers and officials played within a government and a community of people. He's living out what he writes in Romans 13 with regard to honoring and respecting governing authorities. Let's acknowledge that this is a difficult balance to walk. It's not always the same in every circumstance and situation. However, Paul knows that his own witness and his own, re- his own integrity required him to live in a way that is consistent with the law. When he becomes aware of his own violation of the law, he acknowledges it and makes it right. And the contrast here between the high priest and Paul is very clear. One of them, Paul, seeks to be always consistent with the way of God, not only when it is convenient for him, but even when it is humbling and when it is difficult. The other is willing to forsake the law when it serves him and enforce the law when it's convenient to him. Continuing on, it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Paul does several things here that are very shrewd. He knows that the council is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul knows that they disagree about the nature of the resurrection, about angels, about spirits, and aware of this fault line, he decides to press on it a little bit more. And in my estimation, Paul was probably thinking to himself, okay, I got smacked on the face After one sentence, this defense is going nowhere. No one is going to listen to me here, and this is not going to be productive. How can I help them to see their own division a little bit more clearly? Paul himself was trained as a Pharisee. He still identifies as a Pharisee we see here. And yes, you can be a Christian and a Pharisee. They're not mutually exclusive. However, Paul here, he's not trying to manipulate or lie. He just speeds up the disagreement that he knows is about to come. He is accurate in saying that he is on trial because of the resurrection. The resurrection was a significant part of Paul's testimony about Jesus. Paul had seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. And over and over, the resurrection is a source of conflict for him. In Athens, they called Paul crazy because he taught about the resurrection. In his letter to the Corinthians, he needs to correct some errors and make things clear and says that if there is no resurrection, then we are all to be pitied. Here in Jerusalem, it is again a source of conflict. The resurrection has always been a central part of the testimony about God's saving work through Jesus, and it has often come under attack, but it is the mark of God's vindication. It is evidence that God has defeated sin and God has defeated death, and it gives us the hope of our own resurrection, our own new life. Paul doesn't throw the resurrection bomb at the council just to stir controversy, It really was the reason that he's on trial. He just skipped a few steps and went straight to the thing he knew that would create the division among them. And if you've ever seen a movie where a hero is sitting tied to a chair, getting questioned by the bad guys, and the hero begins to realize that there is some sort of underlying conflict between these gang members, and he starts to point that out to them, and he starts to press on that conflict a little bit, and soon enough, they're fighting each other and the hero escapes. This is a fairly common trope in movies, and that's what's happening right here in the book of Acts. Except the fault line that Paul presses on is not something trivial. It just happens to be one of the most important and central parts of our faith. And he gets the result that he's hoping for. We see in verse 9, that or then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The Pharisees, they rise up in defense of Paul, not because they're now on Paul's team. They don't believe in Jesus any more now than they did when they first sat down at council, but they know of this underlying disagreement, and they see an opportunity to add a few bricks to their side of the argument. So they say that they find nothing wrong with Paul. What if this risen Jesus he's talking about was a spirit or an angel that had spoken to Paul on the road to Damascus? They didn't want the possibility of that to be dismissed, and so they defend Paul. This leads to a new dissension, which gets so intense and so violent that the tribune is actually worried that Paul is going to be ripped apart, and so Paul is ordered back to the barracks again. And I think Lysias, he, again, just must be so confused, this poor man, He goes home, he must have just been a wreck. Another attempt to figure out what's going on with Paul, another outburst. What's he going to do now? So while Lysias is at home, probably popping Advil, sipping some wine, binging on the newest Netflix show to take his mind off of this confusing case, Paul, on the other hand, is receiving the comforting presence of his Savior. And it says in verse 11, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What an incredible story, isn't it? One of the reasons that I love the Bible and I'm so grateful for our scriptures is, one, it's just incredible literature. It's really, really good literature. The intrigue, the characters, the way that God weaves the story together is truly remarkable. And what's even more incredible is that this great literature reveals truths about who God is and his plan in the world. Now, this, now, with this narrative in the back of our minds, let me make some applications for us. As a reminder, the framework that we started with is that even on our worst days, we are responsible for our witness, for our conduct, for the way that we go about our witness. God is responsible for his work. We need to do our job and trust that God will do his That's what we saw here in Paul. He's having a hard day, but he remained a faithful witness, which Jesus affirms here in verse 11. So three applications from our text this morning. And these applications, just to be clear, they're not going to cancel out your bad days. They don't just make them go away, but they will serve as some principles by which we are called to live, even in the midst of our worst days. And so the first is to live with confidence. Paul lived with confidence even on hard days, like we just read about. We see it in his claim to his rights as a Roman citizen, his confrontation to the council, his testimony of the resurrection. Paul had confidence, but it's important to know where it came from. He had this confidence not in who he was, but because of whose he was. Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and been commissioned by God to be a witness to the Gentiles. Paul also had God's word that had been passed down through the ages, When Paul refers to the law in verse 3 at this council, he quotes from Exodus, it shows that he trusts in the authority of the scriptures. And for him, for Paul, that that would be the 39 books of our Old Testament. Today, we trust in the authority of all 66 books of our Old and New Testament because we believe that they are God's very words to us. In them, we have all that is needed for salvation and for a life of obedience. God is present with us in the scriptures These words are living and active. They are God's very words to humanity, mediated by God's Spirit. And in our moments of difficulty, what we want so often is for God to show up, and we can know and trust that He has. God showed up in the person of Jesus. God has shown up through the indwelling presence of His Spirit in those who have believed. God continues to show up through His Word as we read it and as we gather and hear it preached. Our confidence comes from the same place as Paul's, through the presence of God, through Christ, the Spirit, and the Word. And that confidence gave Paul the ability to confront the inconsistency of the council. Ananias was inconsistent. He was supposed to be an upholder of the law. But when this law was now inconvenient to him, he was willing to break it for his own gain. Paul had the confidence to know that this was wrong, and he calls it out. And we can have that same confidence as well, not in ourselves, but in Christ. We are not confident because of who we are, but because of whose we are and whose word we have. We don't get to listen to God's word only when it's convenient for us. Now, it might be easy to listen to God's word when we read that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But what about when we read about loving our enemies, about doing good to those who hate us, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who abuse us, What if the very thing that God is strengthening you for through Christ is the contentment and joy that comes from giving up your own self-vindication and leaning on the one who died for his enemies, the one who died for you? Even on your hardest days, you can live with confidence, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. Second is to live with humility. Humility. And this is, of course, related. We see throughout this passage Paul's confidence and his humility. Paul is confronted for his own violation of the law and he has the humility to acknowledge his error. It would have been easy for him to just want to justify himself, to shift the blame. He could have responded by saying that Ananias is a terrible high priest, that he's not worthy of the office, that he was a disgrace to the role. However, when Paul was made aware of his error, in humility he takes responsibility. He submits to the law. This is not always easy to do, but it is possible because of the confidence that we have in Christ. In humility, we can respect the human authorities that are put in place over us. And in humility, we can admit our errors when personally confronted about the ways that we have violated the law or lived without integrity. This happened to me a little over a year ago. On January 6, 2021, there were protests in front of the United States Capitol. These protests turned into riots, and approximately 2.13 p.m., the Capitol building had been breached. I posted comments publicly about my grief over these events, and in particular about my sadness over the complicity of the white evangelical church in this madness. At one point in this post, I referred to our president simply by his last name, and I got a text from someone in our church. He affirmed much of what I had written, but he requested that I edit my post with one word. He asked that I address our president as President Trump and not simply as Trump. And he was right, and I was wrong. I acknowledged my error, I edited my post. There is a long-standing tradition in our country that we refer to our president by the title of their office, not simply their last name. His concern was that my comments would go unread by those who needed to hear them that I would be furthering the disrespectful public discourse by the way that I referred to our president, that that in, in many ways I would be inconsistent with my witness, that I would be compromising my witness. And he was right. It doesn't matter what we think of their politics, whether Democratic presidents or Republican ones, the way we speak about our elected officials, it matters. And it may seem trivial even or small, And I cannot quote a passage from Exodus to reinforce the title that I give to our president. However, Paul seems to think that the command in Exodus has further application to other government officials. He writes as much in Romans 13. And since our first president asked to be referred to as President Washington, that's what we've done. So when confronted about our errors, we must have the humility to acknowledge when we have been wrong. Rather than blast this person back via text saying that I was entirely justified in what I had written and that our president was not conducting himself in a manner worthy of his office, I said, thank you for the correction. I made the edit. Our conduct in the public sphere matters. The prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, which has been passed down to us through Protestant Christianity and is part of the heritage of our nation, Like the prophets of old spoke truth to power, our heritage is one of boldly critiquing those in power. When we see injustice, we correct that injustice. However, the manner in which we do that matters. Even on our bad days, when we are grieved deeply in our hearts, we can have the humility to receive correction, even while confronting those who are in the wrong. In many ways, Paul was calling for the high priest to be consistent, If he wanted to judge by the law, he should uphold it. Paul himself wanted to be consistent as well. When confronted about his errors, he received the correction with humility. I think, based on his example, we are called to do the same today. Now, the third application is to live with Christ. We live with confidence, we live with humility, we live with Christ. At the end of Paul's long and difficult couple of days, Jesus comes to him and reminds him of his presence. Have courage, Paul. Jesus says to him at the end of our most difficult days our greatest encouragement is knowing that our savior is with us he knows us he sees us he has not left us in reading this i was reminded of paul's words to his young protege in second timothy 2 Timothy is widely regarded as Paul's last letter. In it, he says that he has fought the good fight, he has kept the faith, he has finished the race. And you might think that Paul, finishing the race of life, is greeted by a cheering section like the end of a marathon. Here he comes to cross the finish line. But that is not the case. Paul had this incredible ministry, he had this incredible impact, surely at the end of his life... He must have had this great memorial service like we saw for Billy Graham a few years ago, attended by presidents and dignitaries, televised for a massive viewing audience, but that's not the case for Paul. Paul's last days were as lonely as the one that we're reading about here in Acts. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes about all the people who had abandoned him. Three different sections in 2 Timothy, you'll read about people who have abandoned Paul. He lists names Phagellus and Hermogenes, which I think he lists those names because you know, he, he wants to make sure Timothy knows, yes, they really did abandon me. Surely not them, Timothy must have been thinking. Paul continues to list more names, some who left in error, others who were aggressively opposed to Paul. And Paul laments that no one was with him at his defense. All abandoned him. But, he goes on to write in 2 Timothy 4, 17, the Lord stood by me, and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Sometimes our bad day is the result of illness, sometimes accidents, sometimes natural disasters, but I think the worst days are the results of people. The the most difficult cross that you will bear in this life is the result of other image bearers. People will bring you your greatest joy in this life and also your greatest pain. And when you feel abandoned by those around you, when you watch people whom you thought that you trusted turn out to be your enemy, when you see people whom you thought were in your corner end up cheering against you, when you are betrayed by your best friend, slandered by people that you respect, deceived and mistreated, even if you have conducted yourself with confidence and humility on those worst of days, you can get to the end and you can feel alone. But know that the Lord stands with you and he strengthens you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. At the end of your worst day, you don't need someone to tell you to just ignore it all or to get back up and swear that you won't lose, to give you some pithy phrase, whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger. What you need more than anything is to know that Jesus is with you. To know that the one who stood for you is now standing with you. Jesus stood for us at his own trial so that he can stand with us now on our worst days. He stood for us in the betrayal and the abandonment of those closest to him so that he can stand with us when we feel alone. Jesus stood for us on the cross so that he can stand with us in our own guilt over our sin. Jesus stood for us in his resurrection so that he can stand with us in the new life that we have through him. Our Savior stood for us where we could not, and he stands with us even at the end of our worst days. See, we are responsible for our witness, and God is responsible for his work. We are called to do our job and trust that God will do his. Now as we turn to the table, let, let, let's remind ourselves of the way that Jesus did stand for us on the cross. Trust again that he stands with us now in this life, Now, practically, if you do not get the elements on the way, and just raise your hand, and one of our Connections team members will bring them around to you. If you're on our live stream, feel free to head to the kitchen and grab some crackers and some juice, and you can join us. If you are not a covenant member here at River City Church, you can still join us for communion, but we do ask that you have trusted in Jesus. And I say that not to be unnecessarily exclusive, but to make it very, very clear The bread and the juice, they do not save. Jesus saves. The broken bread will point us to the broken body of Christ on the cross. The shed blood, or the the juice, the cup, will point us to the shed blood of Jesus in which God forms a new covenant with us. And if you have not trusted in Jesus like that, then there is no need to eat. There's no need to drink. Let it even call to your mind to confront you even in this moment about whether you want to trust in Jesus like that. If you walked in here having rejected Jesus, having worshiped other gods, other idols, other things, yourself, your job, your money, whatever, and you felt convicted of your sin this morning and you want to trust in Jesus, the invitation is available to you. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can repent and trust in Jesus now. Be welcomed into the family of God. And for those of you who have trusted in Jesus and are going to participate, the Scriptures encourage us to examine ourselves, to take consideration, take stock of our own lives, to confess and to repent our sin as God's Spirit convicts us, to confront our pride and to trust again in Christ's death on our behalf, to remind ourselves of the hope of salvation we have in Him. After you have repented and confessed your sin, you can participate then in confidence, knowing that as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death over you, trusting again that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to give you a moment of silence to examine yourself, to acknowledge your sin, to remember Christ's death on your behalf, and then participate in communion with us in confidence, knowing that He has made you clean. So I'm giving them a moment of silence. I'll lead us in taking the elements in a moment. Now, as we take communion together, receive the good news of the gospel preached over us as we remember the hope that we have in Christ. The scriptures tell us that in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you eat this bread, remember Christ's body broken for you. The scriptures go on to say that in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you drink this cup, remember Christ's blood shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you've loved us that you've called us to be yours, that you sent your son that we could be adopted as daughters and sons. As we have now taken the cup and eaten the bread, Lord, I pray that in them we would be reminded of the hope we have in the gospel, that we'd be reminded of Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross, and we'd have the hope of the resurrection the truth upon which paul here was on trial the truth upon which he his hope rests got to pray that we would be faithful witnesses even on our worst days that we would live with integrity that we live with confidence and humility and that we would remember that we live with christ we pray this in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this sermon from river city church If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.